0: Win at Work and Life with Nikki Bush is the podcast where you and I explore what it means to win at both work and life. Today, you get to choose how to create a life of meaning and self-expression that includes both your work and life outside the office with your family. In this episode, I'll be talking to Rob Kasky about the importance of storytelling in disruptive times. Rob Kasky is a master storyteller international with an international career spanning five continents from boardrooms to stages, from ocean liners to the battlefields of KZN. You'll find Rob regaling audiences in his trademark shorts and his storytelling stick. Also an inductive into the Professional Speakers Association Speaker Hall of Fame 2019, which is exactly the same year that I received uh, my induction into the Speaker Hall of Fame. So we have that in common. We'll always have that memory, won't we, Rob?
1: It was a magnificent evening and I was very, very pleased indeed to be inducted on the same evening as you, Nikki. I had no idea it was coming. It was an enormous surprise and a really special honour.
0: Yeah, it was. It really was. So, Rob, storytelling is the most powerful way to put ideas into the world. And that's something that you said. And I think like every other speaker on the planet is having to present virtually today. um, You know, that's a big shift for people like you and I, especially you, you know, being in situ often on the battlefields, etc. It must have been quite a shift for you. But where did professional storytelling start for you?
1: Well, Nikki, that's a wonderful question. And it really began quite unknowingly and unconsciously for me. When I was at university in Pietermaritzburg studying agriculture, I did a huge amount of travel on motorbikes into various parts of Africa. And my first motorcycle trip I did with two friends. It worked very well, but I certainly felt that I would rather be doing trips like that alone. And I developed quite a reputation at university for taking risks, for doing these incredible trips alone on a motorbike. I've been up to Northern Zaire on a bike. I think I've done three trips up to Tanzania on a motorbike, along with many others. And every time I came back from a trip, there was always a group of people who wanted to hear what had happened on the bike. And we used to tell these stories over a cup of coffee or lunch in the agricultural faculty canteen until the group got too big for that. And we spilled out onto the banks of the car park in the shade of the trees. And I would sit down and I would simply tell my friends and those willing to listen of my experiences on the bike. And unbeknown to me, I was developing in their mind the reputation of telling a reasonable story. And I never gave it a thought. And those were the years 1986 to 1990. Now we need to leap for 20 years to, or rather 10 years, to the year 2000, where I was actually traveling abroad. And one of the folks who used to listen to the stories on the banks of the car park at the AGFAC had become curator of the Rookstiff Museum up on the Anglo-Zulu war battlefields. And David Rattray and he were good friends. And David Ratcher was the doyen of storytelling and certainly the doyen of this Anglo-Zulu war storytelling had become world famous for his wordsmithing and his ability as a raconteur and he was looking for someone to help him telling the stories on the battlefields and that curator gave it some thought and remembered me and he said David I don't know where Rob is now I don't know if he's interested but I think if he was interested you could teach him the history but I think he tells a good story. And he fortuitously introduced me to David Rattray by telephone. And I was asked to meet up with David Rattray when I got back from overseas. And the rest, as they say in history. So it really is an amazing story where I quite unknowingly and unwittingly was exposing friends and those who wanted to listen to stories that they would one day suggest that I would become perhaps a professional storyteller. Because if I was told 21 years ago, I'd one day be making a living out of telling stories. I would have laughed had I ever suggested that. And here we are.
0: Well, isn't that just fascinating? And it speaks to the power of story in terms of memorability. And if we can package information in a story, it's very different to somebody just telling us facts, for example, about disruption or endurance or leadership, which are often the topics that you focus on um, when you unpack the learnings within a, a tale or a story. And I think the world has never been in a place that it's in now where it needs stories more. We get given a lot of advice as to, you know, how to cope with disruption and um, let's face it, we're in this, this global pandemic right now, but I honestly believe that you have a very special place um, in, in the speaking world in um, helping your audiences to transport them uh, into another place. So, you know, You've already alluded to the power of story, but what are the kind of major topics um, that you're being asked to speak about uh, with companies these days? And maybe you can highlight some of the uh, characters that you talk about to your audiences.
1: Nikki. with the greatest of pleasure, you know, I'm asked very often to speak in this country. I have three primary talks that I deliver often here. One called a South African Odyssey, which is a background to South African history leading up to the outbreak of the Anglo-Zulu and the Anglo-Boer War. And within that story, central to that story and the disruption within it, is the great Zulu paramount chief Shaka, who came to power in the very same year as a mighty volcanic explosion in Indonesia called Tambora, which caused a mini-tuck climate change and enormous changed to much colder temperatures all over the world and created disruption all its own. And as a result, so many people here and readers of history believe that shaka was at the epicenter of what we call the infekai, or the crushing. And I believe it had more to do with the socioeconomic circumstances and the hardships associated with Tambora rather than it had to directly with shaka. And for most South Africans, there's a tremendous realization when this is unpacked and explain to them. And then of course I've built my reputation if any on the power of the stories of Isandlwana and Rourke's Drift which are mighty battles in the Anglo-Zulu war and indeed took place on the same day. And then I wanted to expand my repertoire to doing other things and I've always wanted to visit Antarctica it's been a passion of mine since I was a child. So I started to study the great race to the south pole between Scott and Amundsen, which was won by the remarkable Norwegian Roald Amundsen on the 14th of December of 1911 at 3 p.m. He got to the South Pole. And sitting in the wings is a remarkable man who spent his early years in Ireland called Ernest Shackleton, who emerges as one of those people in life who lived his life like a rushing wind. I think he was larger than life in many ways, cavalier, unorthodox, ready to try anything. And I think in many ways, a dreamer. So I'm often asked to talk about Scott Amundsen and particularly Shackleton in terms of their experiences and the disruptions, because the disruptions now for Shackleton's expedition, when days gone by, we always unpacked the issues of survival, leadership, resilience, at times even spoke about decency and valor There's no doubting that his expedition experienced major disruptions, not only one, major disruptions that he had to keep changing his response to. And some of the wonderful, wonderful phrases or expressions that Shackleton are remembered for, one, he said, leadership is a fine thing, but it has penalties. And one of the greatest penalties is that of loneliness. And in response to disruption, he said, a man must shape himself to new circumstances. Immediately, the old ones change. And I think too many of us in this age of disruption forget that. And then he said, difficulties are just things to overcome after all. And if we have any time to expand upon the difficulties that Ernest Shackleton experienced, I think that people realize the difficulties perhaps that they're experiencing in their old lives today are really quite small and weak compared to the great disruptions he experienced?
0: Yeah, you know, um, necessity is the mother of invention, isn't it? So when you are forced into a corner, well, there's only one way and it's forward and you've got to go right through the obstacle over at work with it. You, you can't obliterate the obstacle. And so much of what you're talking about was external disruption. Uh, you know, things that were completely out of his control in that particular story and That's what we face in COVID. So much of what we're going through is not in our control. And getting your head around that and learning how to deal with it is a big mental mindset shift um, that we can't wish for the world as we would like it to be. We have to work with the world as it is. And that poses its own challenge. So perhaps you can give us some insight based on, on the stories that you that you share?
1: Well, look, Shackleton was a man who tried very hard to get to the South Pole and on board a ship called the Nimrod. He was able to get 97 miles from the pole on the 9th of January of 1909. It must have broken his heart. It was a total distance of 880 miles. They had got to the 97 miles of the pole and he realized he didn't have enough food to get all the way to the pole and back. And reluctantly he turned his team around and extracted them safely writing later to his wife that he figured she would prefer a live donkey to a dead lion. (laughs) Having achieved further south, the race to the pole took an ominous turn with a whole lot of different nationalities and teams racing for the pole. The race was won by Amundsen. Scott stumbled in on the pole 34 days later, absolutely horrified. He and not one of the other four in his party made it back alive. But Shackleton, sitting in the wings, wondered what is the next great geographic prize left for humankind and he planned a crossing of antarctica from the western side to the eastern side via the south pole a distance of 1800 miles around 3000 kilometers most of it uncharted and by the time he'd made his preparations in the latter part of 1914 world war one broke out so he immediately approached the admiralty and said i will offer my men carefully selected and my two ships to the war effort. And Churchill, who was head of the Admiralty, said, proceed. So proceed he did. And he ended up arriving at South Georgia, that little pinprick of an island in the wild Southern Ocean, at that time, the headquarters of World Whaling, headed up by the Norwegians, together the pack ice and the sea ice in that year was the worst in living memory, and he had to delay his departure a month before setting off southwards into the Weddell Sea on the edge of Antarctica to set up his base and take off. Well, they got to within 40 miles of where they had planned to set up their base. When the wind turned, the temperature plummeted and the sea froze, trapping their ship like an almond in a slab of chocolate, rendering the ship as it's now being forced away from land in the drifting ice pack to become a winter station. Now, winter in Antarctica is four months of complete darkness More people take their lives in polar winters than anywhere else on Earth. And he had to try and maintain the morale of the the men, maintain a normal ship program daily, exercise scientific experiments, but all the time concentrating on morale. And then 10 months after the ship was trapped in the ice, millions of tons of ice began to move and began to crush the ship. The ship was eventually pierced and water poured in 28 men and 57 dogs had to take up their position on the ice. And over the following three weeks, they washed their ship systematically crushed to matchsticks and eventually sink to the floor of the Weddell sea. Now, if you want to imagine disruption in a scenario or in life, try to imagine that. Well, what followed was Shackleton maintaining the morale of the men, eventually having to destroy all the dogs and the cat in it, some of his men attempted a mutiny. He threatened to shoot them. He showed them a contract to say they'd all agreed to be under his command, whether at sea or on land until return to a safe port. And he said, as the options narrow, you have to go for broke. And eventually he would sail a lifeboat, Nikki, from Elephant Island, 1,300 kilometers to South Georgia to try and get help from the whalers. And it took him three attempts, on one, he was only five miles from the island when Sea stopped him getting back to the 22 men he'd left on Elephant Island, and eventually four months and one week after leaving them. He got back there on the 30th of August of 1916. Four months and one week after leaving them, they hadn't lost a man. It's considered the greatest feat of man management in the modern age. One of the greatest stories of survival we'll ever know, and out of it come incredible learnings Particularly surrounding the issue of disruption and one's response to it, and always believing, Nikki, in a positive outcome.
0: Some of the things that you've highlighted that for me are parallels with where we find ourselves in this global pandemic. Uh, You talked about loneliness. Um, You know, they were isolated as we have felt isolation. And next to his story, it's minor what our isolation has been. But we've had the sense of extreme isolation and loneliness because we haven't been able to go into the office or socialize as we would normally do. And people are really starting to celebrate uh, and I think acknowledge and honor the importance of humanity and human connection, despite the fact that we live in this incredibly digitized world. And we have been able to survive Uh, the pandemic because of being able to connect virtually as you and I are doing this podcast with you and KZN and me and Joburg and we're on zoom and we're able to continue with our business. Isn't that fabulous? But we are coming to realize how important our human connections really are. So loneliness and isolation you have, um, you've highlighted. You've also spoken about the importance of, of, managing your emotions and your mind and believing in a positive outcome, it's so easy to fall into a hole and become a victim of circumstance. A lot of the work that I do is helping people to keep a sense of perspective. I talk about uh, balancing the collateral damage with the collateral beauty, being able to see both. There is always gonna be damage and disruption but can you see the opportunities can you see the possibilities that exist at the same time and then you mentioned exercise which in terms of mental fitness and positivity we have to we have to move motion shifts emotion and i can only imagine the kinds of extreme feelings that those men must have been going through at that time knowing that they were trapped Knowing that nature was actually against them. And yet they persisted. Um, you know, how did they persist against all odds? How did the, I mean, four months later, their leader comes back and they haven't lost a man. That's incredible.
1: It was absolutely incredible. But Shackleton had left on Elephant Island in charge of the 21 men with him a remarkable friend and second-in-command on the expedition called Frank Wild, who was a small, wiry man with violet-blue eyes. And he used to get the men daily to pack their bags, saying the boss, as Shackleton was affectionately known, might be back for us today. So he wouldn't allow a feeling of despondency or despair to take hold of the men. Every day, he convinced them that the boss might be back for us today, and they would burn a fire up on a cliff to create smoke, to attract attention. At this point, all their food and emergency rations were gone and they were forced to eat seaweed and kelp, Nikki. They were sleeping under two upturned lifeboats as a little shelter. They were sleeping on guano, which, uh, when it defrosts, becomes a particularly unpleasant and olfactory experience. And the beach on which they were situated is about the quarter the size of a rugby field so you've got the southern ocean in front of you and a cliff behind you so there's nowhere really to go and have a moment alone you can't go off for a walk but shackleton coming back to the point you made earlier knew that idle minds and idle bodies is a very very dangerous combination and we need to work hard at trying to remain positive and trying to keep our minds and our bodies and our emotions active and fit that they can assist us in best dealing with these times and the challenges we're facing.
0: Yes, and people are experiencing, you know, when you experience that sense of isolation, when you're not going into the office, when you're not even having that basic acknowledgement every day that you exist. You know, I think people have underestimated that just by going to the office or children going to school and being ticked off on a register, there's that, I've seen you, you exist, you're real. Uh, And what we are starting to see, I think, is a real shift to self-leadership away from so much dependency on the organization. We are having to uh, motivate ourselves, affirm and validate ourselves. And that's something many people have become so used to, this external validation, this external affirmation that we've almost forgotten that sense of self and self-leadership and self-drive. So I don't think it's a bad thing that we're being forced into this corner of having to actually dig deep and discover a wellspring of resources that human beings actually do have. And I think a lot of them have become dormant over time as we've become more dependent on externals. Uh, and and your story of Shackleton just shows how people had to dig so deep to um, to remain alive, let alone anything else, but to actually remain alive emotionally and to stay alive physically, they had to pull on that internal well of, of perseverance, resilience, resourcefulness, just plain old grit.
1: And what is wonderful about it all, Nikki, if you want to take it a step further, is that many of the men who were with the Shackleton on this absolutely indescribable journey in terms of hardship and difficulty and isolation and loneliness. Many of them went on to senior positions at universities in their respective disciplines, geologists, physicists, mathematicians, and so forth. When Shackleton planned another expedition to the Antarctic in 1921, the expedition in fact on which he died, there were many men who volunteered to go back with him. And not one of the men on his expedition returned with major psychological damage or psychological issues. And when you read about other polar expeditions, be they in the Arctic or the Antarctic, where people resorted to cannibalism, they murdered their captains, people went absolutely stark, staring mad and returned completely changed individuals. It shows up Shackleton's expedition and leadership in an even greater light.
0: What's interesting about what you're saying (laughs) is that it reminds me of the seven stages of adjustment and transition to change. There are seven stages. They're similar to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief, but for me more practical. And the first two that that are in the chain that come to mind are when we face a, a disruption or an adjustment, the first thing we feel is immobilization like, Good grief, you've gotta be kidding. Absolutely not. Uh, You mean we're gonna be locked down? Really? You gotta be joking. You know, that was that first um, response that we had when we heard we were actually gonna be locked down in this pandemic. And from there, what happened to me, which is the second stage in the seven stages of adjustment um, and transition is that to minimize the shock and the threat We have to minimize it to make it more manageable. Um, And what I landed up doing, and I think what your stories enable, is for us to compare ourselves to others who've been through tough times. And I remember walking backwards and forwards when we couldn't walk outside our properties in the real deep stages of lockdown. And I was having a really down day and feeling quite, you know, um, a bit depressed. I think it was. Probably after one of our uh, family meetings with our state president, uh, where we had the um, lockdown extended for the first time. And I remember walking up and down my 20 paces in my little rented um, property at the back, uh, in the backyard, going, you know what? if Nelson Mandela could come out of 27 years of incarceration and do what he did, then I can make a plan. If Viktor Frankl could go through Auschwitz, come out and change the face of psychology, I can make a plan. I mean, this I'm not in that situation. It's not as, as precarious. And you're offering us this analogy of this explorer in the South Pole who faced things that were just so unbelievable. And we can actually say, well, if he could actually win through that, If he could come out the other side and you're saying that everybody in his team went on to bigger and better things without massive psychological damage, that gives me hope that we can survive this. We can find our way through this maze of not knowing what the future looks like. We've got a few minutes um, left, and I just wondered if you would like to share a a short story with us. I mean, you've already shared so much around Shackleton, but is there another short story you'd like to regale us with? Because personally, I think right now the world does need more stories, more analogies, because it takes us on that journey of uh, getting not out of our heads, maybe just taking us to another place in our heads and in our hearts where we actually can connect deeper with ourselves and with our own response to what's going on around us. So, Rob, I'm going to hand the floor over to you um, to get you in real storytelling mode, because I absolutely love your stories. And I want to know, have you got your stick in hand? Have you got your story? Yes, he's got his stick in hand. Um, And and away you go. The floor is yours.
1: Mickey, thank you very much indeed. And I think as an appropriate and a fitting conclusion to our wonderful chat together. I really have been sharing stories about the Battle of Isant Luana for 21 years. It is really central to my being and central to my storytelling journey. And in that story is a moment where a young groom called John Williams from Wales said in a letter to his mother he was lucky enough to get away on a horse. He said, mother, something prevailed upon me to look up at the hills to the north and I'll never know what that something was. But the hills turned black as rank upon rank of Zulu warriors stepped out onto that escarpment and they began to drum their feet into the ground and thump the Asagai shafts into their shield. And then they'd pull their shield out to the left to give the illusion of the numbers having doubled. What a sight and sound it must have been. And most of our guests are unaware that the commander at Isantawana was 70 years of age on the Zulu side and he'd run 70 miles, 110 kilometers over four and a half days to lead his army against the British. And when he could see that they were ready to go, he lifted his axe the Isizans, and his right hand, and he bellowed at his men. He shouted, I shall, I am God, Haba, to arms go in. And 25,000 Zulus began to close on the camp in the horns of the buffalo. That formation in battle perfected by King Shaka, and because of the color of the regiments, we could recognize the regiments at a mile, the more white in the shield, the more senior the regiments. So we can tell you that coming off that escarpment by way of the Zulu regiments were the Utulwan, the Inzhang, the Ijarko, and the Inju Then we had the Udutu, the Isat, the Notwengu, the Undi, the Unongkant, the Mpob, the Mshan, the Kanempamb, the Mk, the Sharp, the Kart, and then down in front of Turnford, the mighty course and the Uwe regiments. And as those great bodies of Zulus came on, when they got 600 yards from the British firing line, the British ordered to open fire. Now, they're carrying a .45 caliber Martin Henry rifle that fires a 480 grain soft lead slug. It's a limb severer, a bone smasher, and a skull splitter. And it began to do its quite grisly work. And then the cannons began to test waves through the Zulu advance. Do you know that the Zulus, to the everlasting credit, practically naked, barefooted, with sticks and shields and assegais, came on, but eventually it became too much. And in a great black seething crescent, they took cover in the hollow of ground that runs around the front of the campsite of Isantrawana. We are told that they were giving vent to no great war cry, but rather to a low murmuring musical note, like angry bees going zip, zip, zip. But do you know in the middle of their rank was a young regiment called the Umkejo, who were 30 to 33 years of age, dying to get into the thick of the fight and being absolutely smashed by British half-of-fire. So smashed, in fact, that they were about to turn and withdraw. And had they withdrawn, they may well have precipitated a mass withdrawal of Zulus as the middle of the line broke, and Zulu records concur with this. But a remarkable incident was about to unfold. Their commander, an older man, called Mkosana Kamfundlana of the Biela clan, with his old grey cross around his shoulders, and his headring in his hair, and the lion's claw necklace, the royal award for bravery, the iseku, round his neck. He strode through his men right to the front, and he turned his back on the British line, and he faced his young warriors, and he bellowed at them. He shouted, Yenina ningabaleg, ningabaleg, silo, usasana unga njalo." You mean don't run, don't run. The king, the small branch that extinguishes the flames, that's one of King Khoshwar's praise names. He gave us no such order. Do you know that he'd hardly uttered that cry when half of his head was carried away by a British bullet and he fell dead? But the rallying cry had been made and heard by his regiment and the regiments adjacent to it. And in the face of this bravery and the supreme sacrifice of his own life in attempting to rally the Zulus, the Zulus tell us they would rise up like the water of the sea, and they would fall on that thin red British firing line. Do you know that he has become a great folk hero for the Zulu people? His rallying cry is still a rallying cry for Zulu people to this day. And I have promised the memory of that man that I will never share the story of Isant Luana without sharing who the Zulus believe is the true great hero of Isant Luana. Because too often and for too long, it's been painted as a great British defeat. And we are trying instead to make sure that people know it was a mighty Zulu victory. And if your listeners and your viewers and your supporters, Nikki Bush, remember one thing from our little chat today. I would like it to be in these difficult times that we face with everything we've already shared and as important as that is, that extraordinary outcomes often arise from the actions of single human beings and that we need to take control, be positive, look ahead with great positivity and realize that we really are in control of our own destiny as that great Zulu warrior was when he stood up and rallied the Zulus in the moment that they might have withdrawn. And I hope you've enjoyed that little story.
0: I love that little story. I think I've heard you tell that little story a number of times on different stages, and it never ceases to transport me into a different place. And that's the power of Rob Kasky telling stories. He he brings stories to life. He is an engaging storyteller. Rob, as always, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you being inspired by you and thank you for giving so generously of your time and your insights today and I know that I'm lucky enough to be hosting you at a meeting of mine soon so I'll get to be inspired by you all over again Rob how can our listeners get hold of you if they would like you to come and regale their audiences and take them on a journey
1: Nikki, thank you. Well, my website is just robkasky.com, as in my name. I also have a Facebook page, Rob Kasky Professional Speaker. And then more latterly, ever since the beginning of lockdown, my way of surviving, I've got friends with a wonderful flagstone in their garden. And on it lie the words, don't complain about the darkness if you haven't lit a candle. And it became my mantra. How was I going to light a candle for lockdown with all of our work gone? And I decided to start telling stories online and I tell a story a week or four stories a month on a platform called Patreon. And the link for that is patreon.com backslash Rob So on any of those platforms, including LinkedIn, I'm very easy to reach and I would be delighted to hear from any of your listeners or viewers. And I've so enjoyed our chat this morning, Nikki. Thank you for having me on your show.
0: An absolute pleasure. And I'd like to close off by saying Rob reminds us that we need to be at the ready, and what we do today. Counts. And in fact, you can go on to my website, nikkibush.com, and you can pick up on a poem and a blog that I've written uh, about the fact that we need to focus on the present moment. Sometimes we get so lost in the past, so stuck in the past, or so fearful about the future that we're paralyzed that we forget that our power actually lies right now in this moment in the actions and the decisions we take moment by moment so to our listeners please send through your comments questions and topic suggestions to info at and please share the win at work and life podcast with your friends and your colleagues so that they can continue to win at work and life too